Hi, I'm Jahada Weaver, and you're listening to Tech Mirror. All right, folks, my guest today is Associate Professor Dr. Catherine Ball. She is a scientific futurist, a speaker, an advisor, an author, a founder, a company director, and a cover girl on the latest edition (laughs) of uh, Company Director, which is particularly spectacular. We're going to talk today about Catherine's book, which I have here in my hand uh, called Converge. And the tagline of the book is a futurist's insight into the potential of our world as technology and humanity collapse. Lied. Kath, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun. We've <laughs> people won't know, but we've had some pre-chat that is really quite funny. So <laughs> it's a it's a good basis for us to it start. Is. It is. Now, uh, the first question is what is a futurist and mm. how do you become one? Did you were you when you were a little kid, did you grow up going, <laughs> I want to be a futurist when I grow up? Um it's it's a pretty impressive job title. Mm, I actually wanted to be an astronaut and I wanted to be a veterinarian and I wanted to be a ballerina, all those things that three-year-olds want Mm -hmm. to do. Um, And um, I think ultimately then I wanted to go into medicine and I still wanted to be in environmental science. And I think one of the things that I've always cared about is what's coming next. So the word futurist can sound a bit, you know, silly, but It can be summed up in a lot of different ways, depending upon whom it is you're talking to. So if you're talking to someone in, say, Wall Street, they will call you someone like a global, um, you know, global foresight, Mm -hmm. strategic foresight, predictive planning, modeling, very, yeah, you know, modeling and prediction. And, you know, so my PhD did involve a lot of modeling and prediction, but we were looking at how um, the microbes in the soil actually behave according to different fertilizer regimes. So, you know, I was kind of predictive. Mm. And in fact, the word predictive statistics is in my PhD title. So, you know, being able to prepare rather than react, I think is something that I've always been frustrated Mm. by whenever we've seen anything go wrong globally. It's almost like, why didn't we know that was coming? We knew it was coming. We did nothing about it. And I think the lack of pandemic planning or the seeming lack of pandemic planning um, is is something that I was, you know, very rare that I scream at the television, but every now and then. I do it all the time. I don't have Uh, a television in my house anymore because my husband confiscated it. (laughs) Well, that's another story. Um, But um, but yeah, so this idea of futurism really... I also don't want to sort of look at it like it's a thing that's over the horizon either because the future Mm. is already here. And to quote William Gibson, and everyone will have heard this a thousand times, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And if we're to break that down, it really does come down to the fundamentals that emerging and critical technologies that we are going to have in our lives in the next 10 or 15 years, they're already born. They're already here. But we have a gap between capability and action. And that gap between capability and action is where futurists sit. Because we look at where the levers, we look at where the scalability issues, we look at where the standardization, we look at where the signals are switching on, switching off. We look at the world in a four-dimensional Gaia, as Jim Lovelock came up with it, mm-hmm. you know, one living, breathing beast. How do these things balance? How do we engage ESG investing, for example? How do we look at new business models? QR codes are a great example of this. The people that invented QR codes five years ago had given up on them. They were an orphan technology. And how many of us have been exposed to Mm. or clicked on or looked at or seen QR codes in our lives in the last few years? I do believe people have even had QR codes tattooed on their bodies that when you click on them, take you to Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up on YouTube. So, you know, they have become become ubiquitous in society. And once you hit the tattoo culture, I think you've really made it. So... 
<laughs> this idea of a futurist, you know, it's a difficult word because it's an all-encompassing black box of lots of different kinds of people that like to model, predict, plan, mm. control, scale. Um, and then you've got people looking at it from an economic perspective, people looking at it from an ethical perspective, people looking at it from a technological perspective, mm. and people looking at it from a social perspective. And that's why I find it, I think, to be so intriguing and where I'm putting my bet on my career for the next 10 years, because that is, that, that accumulation of all, all that sort of... Um, places where collisions occur, that crucible of humans, technology and the environment are so beautifully summed up in the School of Cybernetics led by distinguished mm. professor Genevieve Bell. And that's why I've always been attracted to those conversations um, and what it could mean for us, not only um, as Australians, but also as women in Australia um, and how we look to recognise our privilege and use that. I think a lot of futurists do come from a Western world that, that are quite well paid and that sit quite nicely in tech companies or banks. And I would actually like to talk to people that aren't in that position. And, and you'll find a lot of knowledge there around the prediction of how things will be outside of those traditional spaces. Mm. That's mm. a very long answer to a very short and perfectly formed question. <laughs> Thank you, John. No, it's, it's great. So um, you said there when you were a kid, you wanted to be uh, an astronaut, uh, a ballerina, mm -hmm. uh, moved on to wanting to be a doctor. And I've, I've seen you be described as the dame of drones. <laughs> so can you just give us a potted history of your career path? Oh, my gosh. Well, it was Steve Jobs that said, you know, you can only join the dots going backwards, right? Mm. I have pinball machined my way through my yeah. career path. As so many people who have impressive careers have. It's <laughs> really, and this Take is like a, a message for people listening. Oh, like you don't have to have a strategic plan. So I started my, I suppose, once I finished my A-levels in the UK, which mm -hmm. was when I was 18, 17 going on 18, because I was the youngest in my year. So I was just 17 going on 18. Um, and I decided that I wanted to go to Africa before I started university. So um, I did a gap year in uh, Kitwe in the Copper Belt in Zambia, working with HIV AIDS orphans in the late 90s, um, working with a group called Cindy Kitwe, where it was children in distress. And we were working with a grassroots organization, looking at how we provided stability for children inside their extended family groups as the HIV AIDS pandemic absolutely destroyed and ravaged these countries. This is before the advent of or the widespread use of proteases. For example, they actually came out in 1996. Mm. But a lot of the um, HIV medications didn't really hit scale globally um, until many years after that. Um, and when we look now at, um, I get very emotional reading about the mRNA vaccine technology for yeah. HIV, which is one of the silver linings to come out of the pandemic, really, is synthetic biology. So after that, I was sort of thinking, should I I do medicine. I had my place to do environmental protection. I went ahead and did it and I chose a degree that purposefully had a year in industry because I really wanted to still travel. I didn't want to be one of these kids that, you know, went to university, joined the rowing team, played a bit of tennis, had my nice little holiday to Australia. You know, I was a working class kid. I was the first in my family to go to university. I remember turning up to the rowing team actually and they were like, oh, how are you? And where does your daddy uh, work? And where, which school did you go to? And I was like, I cannot relate to any of you. Even though there's lots of tall boys here, I'm going to do 180 and I'm going to leave. So I didn't join the rowing club. So I was very upset about that. But um, it meant that <laughs> I had <laughs> that loss, of course. I could have been a champ. I could have had gold medals. All right. I could have been a championship <laughs> rower. It's one of the parallel universes that I, one of my multiverses that I have not achieved was my Olympic success. Um, the, um, the pathway then took me to Thailand for my year in industry. And you've got to hold on with me here. So I went to Thailand under the late, great Keith Sires guidance, Professor Keith Sires. And I went to Narisawan University in the center of Thailand in a beautiful city called Pitsanulok. And so I 
loved being illiterate. When I arrived in Thailand and I looked around me, I couldn't understand a freaking word they were saying and I didn't understand the language. And of course, we're talking 2000, right? Yeah. So there was no YouTube yeah. for me to learn languages. There's no Duolingo for me to pick up languages <laughs> on. So I tried to do stuff, but I had no idea what I was doing and I just landed completely illiterate. Um, and we were looking for new banana species, which might sound weird, um, but we wanted to register the genomes because biopiracy was a big thing back mm -hmm. in the late 90s, mm -hmm. early 2000s. And what you would find is countries like Thailand, the government was racing to register the genetic stock of their own flora and fauna before multinational companies would come in and register it. And it's ironic because we actually, having had that experience 20 odd years ago, we still have those problems in Australia now. Yeah. Like the Kakadu plum, I think, is registered in the US as a cosmeceutical, which means the Australian government or the Australian traditional owners of that don't own the genetic rights to it in the US. Mm. And, you know, this was after the big push, you know, the ideas, boom, register all your businesses, show us all your, you know, technology and stuff. And it wasn't protected by global trademarks. And so we were just vampired on by by so many of these, these um, global companies, which is a real shame. So then I went on to do my undergraduate degree in environmental protection, like I said. I finished that up and I was considering doing a master's in new technology and Chinese, uh, go to China, mm -hmm. um, and then, or Mandarin rather, and, and go to China. Um, and I also then got offered a PhD. Uh, the professor himself came into where I was working, stacking shampoo bottles uh, in in the in a place called Boots the Chemist that we have in the UK, in Alden Square in Newcastle upon Tyne in the northeast of England. I remember it. And he came in and he handed me this paper and he said, "Would you like to do a PhD?" And I've never been one to look a gift horse in the mouth, but um, you know we don't recognise poison chalices till we start <laughs> drinking from them, do we? Um, nothing ever comes for free, um, and so I survived my PhD and I got my PhD, um, and then I started working um, in environmental consultancy, working with the Water Framework Directive in the EU. The global financial crisis came upon us, and again I started looking, having not got a rich daddy in the city and not got a trust fund to fall back on, I was going to go bankrupt if I didn't move and work. And mm. so I went to my company. I said, look at all these skills, look at all this global experience I have, find me something for me to apply for. And I think they were, they had a freezing hiring, uh, hiring freeze, rather there's my brain. They had a hiring freeze in the UK uh, because a director was going or something like that. And I was like, this is awful. I'm sitting here with like the dream life I want in London, like just, you know, in my late twenties, turning 30, I was like, this is where I want to be. And I wasn't going to be able to stay there. And it was devastating. Yeah. Um, and I was like, well, you know, you're on your own, kid. And and here we go. And um, and I got offered something in Austin, Texas or Perth, Western Australia to work on coral projects. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, if I don't go to Australia now, then I never will. And I'll give it a couple of years and I'll put it on my CV and then I'll come back. So I was data manager on one of the world's largest marine monitoring programs. And I helped rejig a lot of the data management processes and shore up some of the statistics and worked with some amazing scientists on that project. Hopped around a few companies doing various work and started the drone business line at one of them. Mm. Um, then doing... Um, long range drones, non-military drones, so reconnaissance drones, Australian built drones um, with an area approval that was like the size of the Pilbara. So, I mean, we're talking like 500 Huge. kilometer diameter area approval to fly these um, uncrewed vehicles. Um, and we captured information in that first trial that David Attenborough would have given me his firstborn child. I mean, it was just perfect. It mm. was mother nature without realizing we were there. And I know that with the drone stuff, a lot of people are like, oh, look at this picture of this eagle up close. And I'm like, no, that is non-predatory predation. You don't want animals interacting with your drone. How on earth are you allowing people to win photography competitions with these images that are so unethical? Um, 
And anyway, so since then, I've been known as the Dame of Drones and have basically created World of Drones and Robotics Congress as my own business, you know, worked directly with the industry to accelerate it to a business as usual proposition um, and looked at the academic opportunities for that industry and partnership within that industry Um done a lot of speaking work along the way because I was businesswoman of the year back in 2015. And when you get given something like that, you have to own it and use it. Um, And uh, yeah, I've just kind of floated along and in the last few years, had a couple of kids. I've got five businesses that are now expanding globally. I've got my wonderful position here at ANU um, inside Keck, the College of Engineering, Computing and Cybernetics. Um, And um, I'm constantly trying to lighthouse people to get involved with the university and get industry partnerships involved with the university. And so I sit here on this beautiful sunny morning in Canberra thinking blinking heck it's been it's been a while yeah really um since I sat and took stock of where it is that I've come from so that's my pinball machine in brief yeah look what an impressive pinball machine and I think that the trajectory of coming through um especially being the first in a family to do this type of thing and the the isolation and the lack of networks that you have around you during that, it really can't be underestimated. Um, and, and it's something that I think a lot of people still feel. And we don't actually talk about that a lot. Um, and it's a really important um, piece of what shapes you and, and what you're doing. Um, let's move to talk about your book. Mm. Um, I absolutely love it. Highly <laughs> recommend it. And what I, what I particularly like about the book is that It is, there's a lot of depth to the book, but it's very easy to read. So it's the kind of thing that you can kind of give as a Christmas gift to someone who isn't somebody who is deep into tech and they will enjoy it. Um, And you can give it to someone who who is um, uh, focused on these issues and they will also get something out of it. That's quite an achievement. So congratulations (laughs) on that. Thank you. Now, there are 14 chapters in the book and it covers, you know, everything from digital doppelgangers to doppelgangers. I that doppelganger. is such a terrible yeah, I know, word. It's a terrible word. It's not English. It's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> the future of vacations, your 100th birthday party, climate change, the last atlas in the the last athlete in the metaverse. Yeah, that's particularly poignant at the uh, moment. Yeah. yeah. We're going to come to that um, uh, in a bit. What I want to do, and this is going to be a challenge, Kath, but <laughs> okay. I reckon you can do it, is I'm going to do a quick fire round, one minute response. <gasps> Responses. Okay, I can do that. Yeah. I can actually do yeah. one minute responses. Okay, okay we can do Ready? this. All right. So uh, we have six questions. Okay, let's go. Uh, what is your favorite chapter in the book and why? It's like asking you to choose your favorite well, child. You're making me choose my favorite child because I, I should say the drones chapter, shouldn't I? <laughs> no, no, not at all. But it's it's probably not actually. I think the one that was hardest for me to write was the war with no dead. I almost pulled that chapter because it was so difficult. Mm, that's my that's my area of specialty. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> so well, yeah, I almost want to ping pong that back at you and go, ah, what did you think of how I tried to cover that material? Because um, people always talk about killer robots. When you start talking about robots or technology with people, because of the way the media has done this, this. Mm. It's the, um, because of the way our neurobiology works, humans are designed for fear, right? We're designed for negativity. We need to know where the risks are. And so negative clickbait wins. I refuse to allow this book to be a negative clickbait book. And I've probably not sold as many copies as I would have had if I'd had a, you know, biohazard sign on the front and been like, warning, warning, technology's coming. I refuse to s- subscribe to that level of fear because I actually think there's power in how technology is going to work. And a friend of mine in the UK who works in PR, she said to me, look, the UK market, it's probably going to really struggle with this chapter. And I was Mm. like, give me the ping pong. Let's play it. Tell me why. Mm. And she went, well, look at the Ukraine conflict. And I'm like, yeah, look at the Ukraine conflict. 
Look at what's just happened in the Ukraine conflict. Russia was using traditional methodology of dropping blokes out of planes. The Ukrainians were doing cyber warfare. The Ukrainians were flying drones. The Ukrainians were using drone boats to, to go and attack ships. So who was playing with which technology? And even now, you know, the Russians are going with air attacks because they can't go in on the ground because guess what? Traditional ways of warfare don't work anymore. Mm. And the thing that I found most interesting about the Ukrainian conflict has been the use of social media and the use of information warfare. So that chapter for me, The War With No Dead, was the one that was the hardest for me to write, the one that I really wanted to pull. Mm. Um, and I think because I had a really hard relationship with it. What does that say about me? Because I had a really hard relationship with that chapter and I hope to God that I'd done a good enough description of it for people. I think that means that's probably my favourite one. The hardest mm. one was probably my favourite one. All right. Well, that was going to be my next question, which is what was the hard hardest to write? So let's go to the next one, which is which chapter is the most urgent, which is the one that you really, you know, if people are going to read one chapter and you should read the whole book, but mm -mm. if they were just mm -mm. going to read one chapter, which one? Can I have two? Sure. Okay. So the very, very first one where I talk about machine drift and intentionality mm -hmm. around technology, yeah. because we are all guilty of literally throwing hours of our lives and our retinas mm -hmm. down the smart devices for tech billionaires. Yeah. And we have got to become more conscious consumers about how we use the internet. I feel like, you know, people go, oh, you know, there's the power of landing on the moon in your smart device. I'm like, no, I could power a hospital with the computing power on my smart device. Mm. You've got to recognise we literally hold in our hands computing power that our grandparents never even physically saw in a room of computers. And um, so for me, that first one around, you know, are you actually, you think therefore you are or actually are you not yourself anymore because you are being guided all the time by algorithms that think they know what you want. And it's a scary prospect if we don't teach our kids around how to handle these kinds of algorithmic based interactions that we will become mass zombies consuming content that the algorithm thinks that it wants us to consume. And the algorithms are written by people that don't look, sound or talk like us. And they're written in a way or even become, you know, self-generating with machine learning to sell you things. Mm. Surveillance capitalism is a huge red flag for me. Um, the second chapter that I would say is that everyone needs to pay attention to the climate change yeah. chapter. Yeah. Um, so the roof is on fire. And I don't know if you got the quote, you know, everyone sort of my age gets this, some of the quotes that I've got in there. So yeah. everyone knows that song, the roof is on fire. The roof, the roof, the, the roof, roof is on fire. fire. <laughs> oh, sorry, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, if you haven't heard that from the nineties, then you need to go and look at, I mean, the nineties is very popular now, but I'm never going back to low cut high rise jeans and I'm never doing heroin chic again. Cause that's destroyed my upper arms for life now that heroin chic stuff. Um, but the, um, but the idea that, you know, we are literally watching it burn and we sit there and just continue on with our lives. And if we can't recognize some of the connections, swine flu, avian flu, SARS-1, SARS-2, we are going to start having pandemics, global pandemics that will shut us down on a regular basis. And we used to think it was a one in 100 year event. Then it re then we realized it's a one in 20 year event. And now some of the people are predicting it's actually going to be an annual event. Um, and if it becomes an annual event, how do we exist as the globalized society that we are? Mm. What do we give up if we want to keep our lives going? And how do we stay educated as society? And so for me, climate change is much more than, oh, 
you know, half of Australia is on fire. And let's just take a pause there for a moment. All the people that lost their lives, all the people that lost their houses, the intergenerational trauma that comes from huge events. We're still seeing the mental trauma and the post-traumatic stress from Black Saturday, which was what, how many years ago was Black Saturday fires now? Nearly 20 years, surely. Mm, mm. Um, and, um, you know, we look at some of those those things that are going to affect Australians going forwards. Then we look at the Pacific Islands and we've got Tuvalu designing their metaverse because they know they're not going to exist in 50 years. Can we just look at some of the things that are actually already happening? Even in Australia, the Torres Strait is being absolutely battered um, by coastal erosion such that they're losing their food producing areas and they're losing areas of cultural significance like graveyards to the sea. Um, and so... We in Australia have always been called the canary in the coal mine. And those fires that we had in 2019, 2020, which we thought were going to be the worst thing to happen to us in 2020, we basically destroyed parts of the ozone layer and heated the stratosphere by three degrees. So, you know, whenever I give international presentations, and you have to forgive me, I'll, maybe it's the British sense of humour, I've got to be a bit tongue in cheek, or maybe it's the, the larrikin Australian sense of humour, because I've been here 12 years now. I'm kind of, I'm not sure who I am anymore in terms of nationalities. <laughs> but, um, you know, Everyone always says, you know, Australia, it's full of, you know, the most deadly snakes and the deadliest spiders. I'm like, yeah, Australia's trying to kill you. And now we're trying to kill all of you because we've just heated up the stratosphere by four degrees. And, you know, why, why is that not making the headlines? Like, why is that not red flag urgent? We have to do something about this. Um, and so I think looking at how the technology, though, is working to try and find ways to enable people to understand things on a global scale Um I feel like, especially the work that you do here as well, is incredibly important because people don't know what's already happening. And I end that chapter with a quote from Jill Hicks, who was a survivor of the 2005-77 bombings mm. in London. And she was Australian of the year in the UK. And she's got a gorgeous daughter, Amelie. And when Amelie, as a young child, used to see terrorism attacks or fires and things on the television, would get quite upset, obviously knowing that her mummy had been in a terrorist attack. Um, and Jill would always say, look for the people that are helping. Yeah. So again, with this book, I refuse to be the negative clickbait. I want to be a lighthouse to show people that people are trying to help, but we need to be more literate and we need to ask the right questions. Mm. And our MPs need to more, be more educated. Like climate change should be built into every piece of policy. Um, it's a massive opportunity in terms of manufacturing and technology. It's a massive opportunity for Australia to take the place on the global stage to help represent what's happening here, to show people if we are the canary in the coal mine, this is coming for you. Mm. And also an incredible economic opportunity Massive. Right, for Australia uh, in this space, particularly around technologies. And carbon uh, carbon sinking, carbon farming, yeah. rewilding and carbon farming. Yeah. Absolutely huge opportunity. Yeah. So since you finished the book, what technologies have you been exposed to that have excited to you? Like what what, oh. what are the extra chapters that you would, and I know this is part one. There's, this there's is one two of three. more books yeah. coming, right? I've yeah. started writing the second one already. Um, okay. So I'm lucky enough to be part of the XPRIZE global visioneering community. And maybe you can just tell the mm -hmm. listeners a little bit about what XPRIZE is. Yeah. So XPRIZE for me has been a way to tap into some of the most brilliant minds on this planet. But XPRIZE.org and Anusha Ansari writes the foreword for my book as well. And she's a wonderful um, Iranian-American. Uh, she was one of the first um, astronauts. What do they call them? The 
whether you pay to go. I forgot. This is my bra- this is my baby oh. brain kicking in here. She was one of the first like commercial astronauts, right? Astro tourists. Astro tourists, yeah. <laughs> um, but she put her money where her mouth is, and now she's the CEO of the X Prize. So XPrize.org, if you want to learn more, and if you want to get involved in the visioneering community, please do reach out because I can get you invited in there. There's a special code word and a special handshake that Ooh. I have done. Oh yes. Mm. Would you like to? Would you like? Yeah, in? I would love to. Okay, yeah, we'll, get, we'll get you in. Yeah. Um, but I want to try and get the X Prize over here for a visioneering around Australia mm. and the Asia Pack. Um, so XPRIZE create grand challenges. So the best way to describe this is the very, very first one, which actually Anusha Ansari and her family funded, which was the Ansari XPRIZE. Um, and it was all about commercial space travel. So what they had to do was, and the XPRIZE are very good at this. They ask a really tight question. You've just got to answer this really tight challenge. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea of, you know, how do you create these levers for that gap between capability and action? How do you scale? How do you invest? How do you encourage investors? How do you become a lighthouse to new technologies and where they could go? So they're, they're thing for the Ansari um, suborbital space flight was you have to design an aircraft that will go up 60 kilometers, come back down again with the weight of three people on it. So you could have a test pilot and then two bags of sand as far as they were concerned, or you could have three humans on there if you wanted to. Um, And it had to go up and come down and then it had to do it again two weeks within two weeks of that Mm. first one. So the one that won was called Galactic One, which might start ringing bells Mm -hmm. for people because Richard Branson bought it and it became Galactic Two which has now become Virgin Galactic. So they basically created the commercial space tourism industry. Now, people might sit here and go, well, that's no good for the environment. Look at the carbon footprint. And I'm like, I'm sorry, you need to stop and take pause. The people that are actually developing sustainable aviation fuel and the ideas of hypersonic travel, ways in which we will have carbon neutral, super fast travel. Mm -hmm. So you and I, for example, could go to Paris for lunch because the Sydney to London flight would be two hours on carbon neutral hypersonic aircraft. That's coming in the next 10 years. So the things that I'm really excited by are some of these tipping point technologies, Mm. as I refer, I don't even know if that's the right, I just came up with that. These tipping point technologies where, you know, the Ocean Discovery X Prize, which I was a judge on, we had a prize pot of 7 million. But what we know is that that prize pot of 7 million actually encouraged $53 million of investment into the academics, into the startups, into the businesses that were actually trying to answer that X prize. So it's almost like you build it and they will come. And so if you have a look at uh, the current ones are the Elon Musk Foundation's Carbon Reduction Removal X prize. That's 100 million US dollars looking at technologies that are going to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Any governments putting that level of money into this technology? Can we just have a look? Anyone? Anyone? The eFuels X Prize, where they're looking at this sustainable aviation fuel X Prize. Now, we know that green hydrogen is a big thing for Australia, but it's not green hydrogen that I'm interested in. I'm interested in sustainable aviation fuel, being able to put in the sustainable fuel into the engines that we can't change out into electric engines. And that includes wide body aircraft and and any long range aircraft. You're not going to be able to electrify those with current technology. Mm. So we need to look at alternatives because Australia, we live by our aviation and the Pacific, we live by aviation, right? So We know that there are plans to have the first 100% sustainable aviation flight leaving Australia, going to an Asian country. And can you guess when that is planned for? Uh, 2025. March 2023. Wow. So last quick question is... um, you strike me as being an avid sci-fi reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've already dropped uh, <laughs> yeah, William yes. Gibson and a few others. Um, so what technologies that haven't been invented 
and recognizing that actually one of the premises of your books is actually many of these technologies already exist mm -hmm. um, that you really want to invent. So for me, it is um, being able to teleport, which your hypersonic uh, travel uh, is giving me a lot of hope that maybe not teleportation, but uh, something close to it. Mm. What would what's yours? Well, just to add to yours too, they've just had the Avatar X Prize where it's the haptic suits with the robots mm. because they were approached by the sponsor, ANA, the airline, mm. um, to say, can you do teleportation? <laughs> and it's happening on a quantum scale, but I don't think it's going to happen in humans in our generation anyway. Mm. Um, oh, gosh. Oh, I think something... <sighs> I would like us to actually accelerate... Um, a diversification in the way we create food. Mm -hmm. I feel like um, ag tech and agriculture is ripe for disruption. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like we have another 2 billion mouths to feed before I pop off my clogs. And I think we're going to be in real trouble unless we advance some of that technology. If I was to go really wide and far, I'd be like, <clears throat> hypersonics on earth is great, but super fast travel to other planets is going to be pretty amazing. Mm. The idea that we would have to take five years to travel to Mars is too long. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, do you cryogenically freeze people or sleep people the way you do in some of the science fiction movies to get them there? Um, and it's really interesting, you know, having some of these conversations with some of these, you know, brilliant minds out of some of these top US universities. And one of them turned to me at the dinner. We were talking about this, you know, how do we communicate on Mars? We'll have the avatars. There's like an eight minute delay. And like, how would we even do that? And he just turned to me and went, oh, you know, it's a speed of light issue, but we'll solve it. <laughs> and I'm just like, OK, so I would like to see us solve the speed of light. Yeah. If we could break the speed of light, we'd probably also get to teleportation. We would. Yeah. So, you know, if we look at sort of the sort of the quantum physics approaches and we're sat here in the correct university to be having this level of conversation, yeah, I suppose. Absolutely. Um, and we were to look at wormholes and we were to look at that kind of thing. Oh, my gosh, that would be very exciting. I want to talk a little bit about the vacation staycations and mm -hmm. space stations, <laughs> which is one of the chapters um, that you have. Yes. Um, I loved that chapter because you start it by evoking what travel used to be. And it reminded me of traveling in Europe when I was 18. Mm -hmm. So just so I had a gap year as well. Yeah. Um, and and, you know, it was pre-phones. Yes. The internet, you know, was was in existence, but it was, you know, an email uh, internet cafe. And I just internet was cafes. free. And yes. you were, you know, you were out. I carried like a lonely planet that was yes. the size of a brick. You yes. could knock someone out with it. <laughs> but you weren't driven by reviews mm -mm. or, you know, you mm -mm. took photos, but it was, I think I had a digital camera maybe. Actually, I don't even know if I did have a digital camera. Anyway, but the point is you're, you're talking about um, the future of um, – uh, space station travel but you're also one thing that jumped out to me is the movement of slow vacations yes. and slow travel and yep. a reversion to the type of travel like um, mindful eating or slow food or slow reading which mm -hmm. I, I love can you tell me a little bit about that Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I remember turning up, um, well, I was in Harare and in Zimbabwe and I called my mum mm. on the landline that was mm -hmm. attached with a cord. Um, and I said to her, look, I'm going to go to Mozambique for five days. These are the planned places that I'm going to go. This is the, inform and, and you know, this is where you find them in the Lonely Planet Guide. And um, if you don't hear from me in five days, then this is Uncle Rob's number and you probably want to call him and we might need to start something. Uh, I was like, my poor mother, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, she, she's been just an excellent support of mine, you know. And so I turn up in Byra off the back of, so I arrive on the train in Matari and I hitchhike 
with this Finnish friend. Can you, you know, this is like the start of a horror movie, mm-hmm. right? Like, so I just hitchhike with this wonderful Portuguese Mozambican woman who puts me on the bus and she says to the bus driver, these girls are sitting at the front with you. I know what you look like. I've taken your registration. I know you're looking after these girls. And I was just like, yeah, okay, I'm going to pay that forward one day. Like that was just amazing. Yeah. Um, and then we arrive in Byra which is this port city. And um, the kids are all there scrambling around. And I don't speak a word of Portuguese, but I know where it is that I want to go. And I sort of say to them, you know, John's house, John's house. And they know all the all the backpackers all go to this one particular place yeah. run by an Australian uh, British dude called John. Um, and I give them some coins and, you know, they all, and some lollies and, and this, that and the other. And they run down the streets with us and walk down the streets with us holding our hands to, to get to John's house after a 20 minute walk and me thinking I'm going to be worse <laughs> led to a slaughterhouse here. But you didn't, you see, you trusted people. People. And I remember traveling on buses and women would literally hand me their babies. The blokes would try and give me the shake shake or the alcoholic drinks, right? But the girl, <laughs> women would always always make good with the women, right? So the women would give me their children to hold, their chickens to hold. You know, if I was particularly feeling unwell, they'd just be looking after me and like, you know, because I was a bit hungover when I was traveling through on buses in Africa quite a lot of the time. But, um, you know, I just remember turning up and trusting people and speaking to people and, you know, not requiring anyone to tell me how to get somewhere, not seeing on Google Maps where I was going, but asking them, can you show me John? John's house, John's house. Um, you know, and so much has been lost. I oh think. my it, gosh! It really, it was. It was. Um, what, it's my favorite chapter in the book, actually. Um, which is not what I expected. Looking uh-huh. at the list of things in there, because I was just. It really made me stop and think about the intentionality yes. behind what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so you also talk about uh, Industry Five Point yeah. and. Um, industry 5.0 being focused on purpose, which is kind of linked to this idea of intentional travel or intentional reading. Can you can you share a little bit about how industry 5.0 differs from industry 4.0? Mm. So 4.0 really was, it's about 25 years old now, 30 years old now, and it's known as the internet of things. So for that, it's like the hypersensor thing, right? So any cameras that are on you, any smart devices you might wear, I noticed both you and I, oh, I've left, oh, I've taken my watch off. <laughs> I was thinking I'd left my watch. Um, <laughs> both you and I don't wear smart devices. No. And there's a number of reasons why I don't wear smart same. devices. And I think they're probably <laughs> the same. And it's funny, whenever I put my hand up at a conference or my wrist up and go, who, you know, notice the futurist is not wearing a smart device. Mm. Um, and um, so this is the gap that we're in now. So four going into five. So the late great Shinzo Abe of Japan tried to look at the 10 years of economic doldrums that the Japanese economy had been in. And he thought, what do we know that we're really, really good at? How do we apply it to new things? A bit like how QR codes have now been used in public health and they never yeah. have been before, right? Um, and so how do you take a technology, say, for example, in Japan, you're not allowed to have cameras on you. So we have the SoftBank Pepper robots that are used here. And I saw one at Christchurch Airport saying, saying hello to people to remind them to take their laptops out of their bag as they go through security. There's cameras on that thing. So they watch you and watch around. You're not allowed to have cameras on you in Japan. So how do you have an aged care facility built so people can still live at home that have sensors everywhere, mm. but you know there's no cameras? And so what you have is a smart apartment where there's a pressure pad on the floor and on the walls and there's smart device, smart toilet, smart kettles, everything's super smart and connected. And if someone falls over and doesn't get off the floor after two minutes, an alarm goes off automatically. Right. So this idea of connecting up disparate, seemingly disparate technologies and putting them to use for good. Mm. And that society 5.0 statement effectively is the way I open this chapter. So it's like this is actually an economic imperative to take all of the sensor technology and all of the things that we know and not just use it for surveillance capitalism, Mm -hmm. but actually to look at surveillance or surveillance (laughs) full stop. Yeah. And how, how we actually use it to allow people to have happier, healthier lives. But then we now juxtapose that with this idea of implantables. So I 
also do this when I speak to large audiences. I'll say, who here's got some implantable technology? And there'll be a few people with pacemakers, people with every now and then I get someone with cochlea, um, people with diabetic pumps, you know, the new fancy smart diabetes mm -hmm. pumps. So these are implantable technologies because there's a medical reason. We understand them. They're acceptable to society. They're proven technologies and people like them. Mm -hmm. Then you get people um, like the chap in Sydney that kept putting his Transport New South Wales card in his wrist um, so he could Jedi wave his way through. This is the train I'm looking for, you know, and Transport New South Wales will keep switching that off because they didn't want him to have it. And then I have Robin Williams from the ABC Science Show saying, I turned up at an ATM and I didn't have, it didn't take cards, but I don't have a smart device. So how do I get my money? I'm like, well, Robin, in a couple of years time, it will be your face. Um, and so this internet of things going into the internet of bodies is looking at how we look at implantable technologies, biometrics. And if you partner this up with Web3, when we look at this idea of how do we keep cyber secure profiles and trust of identification on the internet going forwards mm. as well, it's going to be the internet of bodies that does this for us. The way you type your password is your password. The inflection in your voice, your iris um, fingerprint, um, even your heartbeat can be registered through your devices. And your heartbeat is unique to you as your fingerprint is. We have to build in layers of biometric identification because otherwise we're just going to have cybersecurity attacks at 100 points of ID mm. that are just going to keep wiping everybody out. Yeah. So for me, the internet of bodies is 5.0. It's taking that technology, applying it to human problems and helping people with diseases, helping people with disabilities, helping people who want to improve their lives. Um, and a really great um, example is like the exoskeleton. So something that's come out of defence that can then be employed in, say, healthcare mm -hmm. um, or in factories. Um, and, you know, if you can't solve it by removing the human, you put the human in the robot or the robot in the human um, in terms of how we look at how we're going to be manufacturing and working with an ageing population going forwards. I saw this wonderful granddad was obviously out for, with the family trip at, uh, I think it was Sea Life Centre in Malulabar um, in Sunshine Coast a few weeks ago. And he was there pushing one of those things around, bent over, pushing one of those things around. And I looked at him and I was like, why isn't he wearing an exoskeleton? Mm. Because we will be. By the time we, we're aging, we will have exoskeletons that will be helping us walk upright. We won't be pushing things along. Um, and that's the speed at which this technology is now going. And for, for listeners, an exoskeleton is essentially um, you strap it on and it gives you additional strength. So, you, you know, you don't quite become Hulk, but the idea is that... <laughs> you can uh, lift 120 kilos, yeah. yeah. Um, but there's also different ones. So you can have it for individual digits. You can have it for mm. individual limbs. And the wonderful Kirk Carson, whose team invented Siri, for example, he was looking at working with kids with cerebral palsy, where you literally pulled it on like I've got my skinny jeans on today. Mm. Like you literally just pulled it onto you and that clothing was your smart device. Mm. And that's convergence. Yeah, that's extraordinary. And and it really is an example of um, a very positive use of technology. I think some of the examples you've given probably are, um, you know, taking people down, oh, how can that be misused or abused? So let's, let's talk a little bit about the concept of digital twins. Mm -hmm. um, what is a digital twin? But mm -hmm. also, as we are having more and more data and information available out there, how do we ensure that it's actually being protected, that we have consent over use of that data? Um, and and I thought you had some interesting insight in the book on that as well. Well, I hate to knock, I hate to knock this on the head, but in Australia, we don't have consent over where our data goes anymore. We have... If we ever did. <laughs> well, I'd like, you know, I mean, the Matrix does choose 1998 as the peak of human civilization, doesn't it? You know, so oh, it's like the flip phone, yeah. you know, that was Keanu. No. I'll tell you, any chance to see Keanu Reeves in that film, I always take it. Um, 
the um the big problem here is and the wonderful Professor Leslie Seebeck, who is still attached to ANU, she was um involved in the Cybersecurity Institute here. Um she is excellent. She yeah. is somebody yeah. to follow on this. Yes. Some of her yeah. thoughts around this are just yeah. she says some things to me sometimes that stop me. It's very rare I find people like that, mm. but when I do, I just need them as my friends. Mm. Um, and, you know, she sort of said to me, Catherine, look, a lot of people think we've got no privacy and so we just let it go. But like I say in my book, we don't. We fight for everything we've got left. Because right now there are digital copies of you that are chimeric, that are sitting inside data amalgamation companies, probably in the US and various other countries. And what they're doing is they're creating digital twins of you that they then use to sell to people. Now, the problem here is that you didn't consent for anything of, of this to nature to happen, except you did when you downloaded the app. If yeah. it was free, you are the product. Meaningful consent is key here. Meaningful yeah. and educated consent. Um, and then also how that goes internationally. And we know that there are some social media companies that are based particularly north of here who've already admitted that they have broken the rules that they said they were going to do around how their information is being shared. Um, and whenever I have a friend that says, oh, yeah, no, I'm on TikTok and I do my dance with my girls. I'm like, you do realize what you're doing. She's like, what? It's just a video. I'm like, no, you are showing all the points of entry into your living room. You are giving away all of the socioeconomic information about your life with all the snacks and the bottles and the shoes and the clothes that you wear. You're giving away all of the information around your biometrics, looking at potential gait analysis to pick up neurodegenerative diseases. Maybe it'll pick up autism spectrum in your kids. Not that that's a bad thing, by the way. I don't say that as a weaponized term, but people do like to weaponize neurodivergent and I don't I don't agree with that. But people can be used to pick up neuro, neuro, neurodivergent um, um trends in, in populations. Now imagine these cameras are pointed at a primary school. I mean, we used to have people that would go and pick up, you know, this person's going to be a good runner, a good swimmer. You know, we, we used to think about stories that would come from north of here again mm -hmm. around how there'd be scouts that would go out and pick out kids that might have biophysical traits that would allow them to be, you know, the best ballet dancer, for example. And then they get stuck in that stream of you will be the best ballet dancer. Mm -hmm. Imagine now we've got that in our primary schools and we're selling that data because it's a CCTV camera that's attached to a shopping center that's next to the primary school that watches the kids walk past it every day. Who's consenting to that? Yeah, We are because we've got nothing against it. And it's almost like if the, it's almost like if we should have it such that they can't take it unless we've approved it rather than they can take it because we haven't said no. Um, and there's a huge argument around consent with this because here's my question back to you. And, and this is the thing that you chew on all the time, right? Mm. Is if there's a digital twin of me that's making money for somebody somewhere, what happens if I die? My digital twin is still going to make money for someone, even though I'm dead. So I don't even have the right to a digital death anymore. And that's scary because mm. my my digital being will exist somewhere without my consent. Mm. And that's that's here and now. That's not even futurism. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, a lot of people um, in terms of um, when you pass away, who has control over your social media accounts, these types of things. Yeah. You know, a few people are starting to think about that in terms of their their um, uh, death planning. Um, but very few people are thinking about the questions that you're putting forward in terms of that use. But also there's there's lots of interesting technologies now that are looking at, well, do you want to have, um, you know, if you can take your WhatsApp messages of your loved one and, and and create a bot that's going to speak oh, back to Lord. you. Is that something that you would want if they pass away? So there's all sorts of really 
um, challenging questions about that. There's a great um, book called The Startup Wife, which is a, a fiction, uh, and uh, it is it is like just a ripping read, which uh, sits around that that question. Um, you spoke a little bit about identifying uh, sports people, um, mm-hmm. and one of the chapters in your book talks about the future of sport. Um, the the most striking bit about that for me was that you predict that we will either have the end of professional sport or we will have everybody basically doping because mm. that's just the future of sport. And that mm. was a pretty stark contrast for me. So um, I, I, any comment you have on that, but also you uh, make the claim um, that we need to have, we need to champion science and science scientists in the same way that we champion sports people. Couldn't agree with you more, but my question is how mm. do we get there? How do we actually transition and make that change? Okay. So, I mean, I take a lot of personal flack because I get on the cover of Company Director magazine and some people don't like it. I take a lot of flack when I've won business awards. Tall poppy syndrome in this country is keeping a lot of really great scientists and engineers down Mm. um, because, you know, if you stand up too tall, you know, I've got a beautiful armory at home for all the knives that were stabbed in my back, you know. Luckily, I've got to that age where I don't care anymore. Um, But also, I've got a really good network of supporters around me. uh, So, I don't feel alone in this. Mm. Um, So, until we start actually celebrating people that have science and technology success. And I don't just mean the Eureka Prizes, which are a wonderful set of prizes. They never get on the front page of any of the major magazines, do they? Are they like front and centre of the news and the media that we see? It's like whenever I say to, I show people a picture of, um, you know, Kim Kardashian and Elizabeth Blackburn. And I say to them, can you name these women? And everyone knows Kim Kardashian and no one knows Elizabeth Blackburn, our only Australian individual Nobel Prize winner who discovered, you know, the work of telomeres in terms of our genetic ageing and our our chronotypes. um, And basically, you know, helped us link things like domestic violence and cancer, you know, through our telomeres. Um, And so we can't even celebrate the people that we know are successful. What is wrong with us? Mm. And I say this as an Australian citizen. And yes, I know I'm a new Australian citizen, but I watch the society that my two-year-old, now three-year-old and four going on five-year-old are growing up in. And in the US, whenever I go there, all of the things that I've done are championed. Everyone is so amazing. They all support each other. They rally around each other. Um, I'm not saying that culture is perfect, but there's more of a celebration of people like Tim Cook, Steve Jobs, these kinds of people. Mm. They are elevated up because they're, they're tech gurus, right? And they're smart. Warren Buffett, their intelligence is, is something that we rank them by. But in Australia, if someone sticks their head up too far, we're just going to chop it off because we've just got to scrape by. You know, don't stick your head up, right? So until we start recognising that the value to our economy of our science, technology, engineering and maths is worth more than the sports economy, then we're never really going to wake up, right? Like when we look at all of the jobs that are coming, they're not jobs in sport, they're jobs in tech. So we need to start celebrating STEM the way we celebrate sports um, because I think it would be nothing but good. Mm. I don't see how that would detract from anything else either. It's not like you have to choose, do we choose sports or science? We can celebrate both. Both, yeah. There's enough opportunity to celebrate both and enough opportunity to talk about both. Mm. Um, And when we look at all of the exciting new jobs coming both in the movie industry, in the sports industry, in in any of the resources, in any of the technologies that are fighting climate change, in politics, in academia, all of the new and exciting spaces are going to have STEM related to it somewhere. You know, 3D visual artists. I mean, Peter Jackson just sold Weta, you know, where they made The Hobbit and The Lord of the Mm. Rings. 2.4 billion Australian to an American games company. Why? Because they're building the metaverse. Mm. Mm. And so we sit here clicking on clickbait 
on social media, but we don't. Losing 40 days a year. 40 days a year. Which was one of the stats in your book that comes to me every yeah, time I yeah. start scrolling. Yeah. I'm like, stop, stop it. it. Stop it. Stop it right now. <laughs> All right. So we're nearly at time. Um, two final questions. Uh, Converge is a trilogy. Uh, what's mm. coming uh, next? And why are you writing these books? Because I think you speak very eloquently about about your children and, and the, the motivation there. So I think mm. it's, it's useful for listeners to hear that. I think I looked for inspiration and all I found was white male American men with mm. an F-bomb in the cover of their book. Mm. And I was like, whenever you walk into a bookshop off the high street, typically, or in the airport, it's very rare to find women's voices in the top 50, Australians' women's voices that aren't either sports stars or Leanne Moriarty. And of course, she's done a great job. Um, uh you know, or people with biographies who are politicians or connected to the sort of like that kind of, where are the voices of Australians mm. inside the way we imbibe knowledge? Um, and so part of me did this because I'm a little bit belligerent as I describe about my granddad, Gordon, you know, um, in the War With No Dead chapter, um, in that I wanted to test the system. Now, this particular book I wrote over 20 nights between 7pm and 1am. It's just crazy. I dumped it out and then I had a science editor helping me fact check everything that my memory hadn't completely gone. Um, and then I had a structural editor and it took me six months to land a publisher. None of the large publishers would touch me with a barge pole because I didn't have a million followers and I wasn't on the ABC all the time. Mm. Um, and I found a woman-owned Australian publishing house to publish me, Leslie, at Major Street Publications. And and I was like, okay, Leslie, this is a test. So let's see what we need to do to make this book a success. And it's now a bestseller, technically. Thank you so much. Over... We celebrate success. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> um, we've got to get better at saying thank you to it as well, right, when people yes. do, because we are humbled enough to say, oh, no, 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 no. Actually, no, thank you. Yeah. This, it, It's been my first work, but I have to say it's not my best. I did it in a, I did it because I needed to get it out mm. of my brain onto paper. And um, everything is intentional from the cover design to the text that's chosen to the way I wrote the chapters, mm. to the way we summarise the chapters and my wonderful editing team um, turned the geek into the chic and allowed it to become a more approachable text than the first thing that I dumped out of my brain in those three weeks. I actually made myself ill dumping that stuff out, but I had to get it out of my head because I've been saying that I was going to do this for years. Mm. Um, it's effectively five years worth of research and speaking work combined into one book. Mm. So, I mean, it's not just come out of nowhere. It has been a labor of love over the years. So now what I've done is I've tried to look at what are the structures that are in place that stop diverse Australian voices getting published? Mm-hmm. And so by, you know me, I'm a bit of a geek, right? So the whole thing in itself has been an exercise of trying to work out where we need to play the system and where we need the levers and where we need to jockey things. And so whenever I um, present now at large conferences and I've got the books there for sale, I say to people, everyone in this room always likes to say, yes, diversity in STEM, women in STEM. Now, whenever anyone says that to me going forwards, I'm going to say to them, so how many copies of my book did you buy? Because if you can't put your money where your mouth is, I don't believe you. And the thing is, if we don't make this a success, regardless of the fact that my name's on the front of it, then it's going to put off anyone else backing any other woman in STEM. Mm. So I said to Leslie, my, my uh, publisher, I was like, we have a fight here that this and I will do everything in my power possible to make this a global success. Mm. Um, and we need to unleash every weapon we possibly have to try and fight against the big publishers that are completely drowning out Australian voices with all of these American books that come in here. Now, I'm not saying they're not worth reading, of course, but why, why is it we don't have Australians in the top 10 of our books? 
Why is, you know, why mm. don't we have women in our top 50? Mm. Um, and so anyway, you can see I was a bit like, right, okay, we've got to try and undo some of the systems and structures that are around this. Um, and so, yeah, it will continue on. We're doing our UK and our US launches. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that I become a Sunday Times bestseller and New York Times bestseller. It's already had an excerpt in the Australian, which was very well received. And some of the comments were so interesting and not abusive at all, which was quite exciting. Um, <laughs> the fact we have to say that, though, is... is I know, never alarming. read the comments, yeah. except I do read the comments. They're quite a good pulse check for people. But yeah, so that's why I did this book was because I feel like as a, as a country, our... Our level of STEM literacy and tech literacy could only be improved. Mm. And I think when we look back at the beginning of the pandemic, when everyone started questioning some of the things that we know to be irrefutably true around public health measures and vaccines, and people didn't understand the difference between a protein vaccine, a PCR machine and an mRNA vaccine, which of course is language that those of us that are in academia are all familiar with. I didn't take that as a success from academia. I took that as a failing. Mm. I was like, how is it as universities, one of our one of our remits is to enable society to be better able to make decisions on the knowledge that they have from the fact that we exist. And so that's been a failing in us disseminating that information. So other than starting a TikTok channel or trying to get into someone's uh, social media that's probably too young, how do we get to the average housewife in Toowoomba? How do I talk to the grandparents of the kid that might be wanting to study science, but the grandparents are looking at her and saying, oh, it's not for you, love. It's a man's world. You know, how do we augment all of the work that's gone down into improving our economy and look at the opportunities through technology um, if people don't get the basics that are in this book? And and again, that's not to sound ivory tower. It's a failing that as academics, we haven't managed to do this already. Mm. And so this is my first attempt to poke the bear in the ribs to see what is it that works. The thing about this book and the book sales, that's one thing. The fact is that we've got the federal government minister, Ed Husick, has bought a copy. I mean, I did send them all copies, but they <laughs> obviously get lost in their teams or whatever. He bought a copy when it was in pre-sale on Booktopia. He's read the entire thing and he's now quoting it in his speeches. Now, I'm sorry. Should I have spent my time writing publications that five people might refer to? Or do I spend my energy as a new generation academic in educating society and having real world impact, real world impact, but also learning and listening from the people that I'm trying to communicate with at the same time. Mm. And so, you know, conversation is the thing that starts innovation and the scale gap between capability and action is about education as much as it is about um, investment. Mm. Absolutely. Um, So, Catherine, in your book, uh, one of the the particular things that I like about it is you end each chapter with getting back in the driver's seat Mm -hmm. and you have really useful resources, practical suggestions for people to do. So I encourage everyone to check that out. Um, The final question that we ask everyone is um, what do you recommend people read? Like what what have you found useful um, for people who are interested in these subjects? Um, Obviously we're recommending the book, but, but, you know, what resources are your go-to? If you said to me, you've got an hour to spend on a particular subject, Mm. the first place I would go is TED. Because I feel like if you want to, and the thing I loved about TED, and you can go to TED.com and in there, there's a filter where you can put in how much time you have and what subject you want to learn about. And they find you recommendations of TED Talks. And and so I had to put something very quickly together around the future of work. And so I needed to access some, I didn't want to sit and read. It was late at night and I didn't want to sit and read, uh, you know, a hundred page document from Boston Consulting Group. 
or from Deloitte or from someone like that. I just wanted the quick and dirty. Give me the summary. I wanted to see the person talk about something with passion and I wanted to see their eyes light up when they talked yeah. about it. Yeah. And so I went to TED. And so um, we've obviously got some great successes with our own um, academics here. I mean, Genevieve, who I mentioned earlier, I think her TED Talks had over 2 million views yeah. now. And it's a great TED Talk. It's an amazing TED Talk. It. Yeah. Highly recommend it. And if On you the ethics of AI. If you haven't watched Genevieve Bell's TED Talks, uh, TED Talk. In fact, she's got more than one. But if you haven't watched that particular one, that's my first go-to around anything around humans and technology. Mm. Um, but that's been a huge source, not only then of finding the individuals that are the best in the business, but those that can put it into 18 minutes or fewer. Yeah. Um, because if you can't put what you love and study and work on into 18 minutes or fewer, then you really don't know what you're talking about. So um, I feel like that TED model has been grown so successfully over the last couple of decades that that would be my first resource. Yeah. Well, look, you speak about people who have passion and whose eyes light up, and that's definitely the case with you. So thank you so much for coming on uh, Tech Mirror. Um, for our listeners, this is actually the last podcast of the year. So we wish you all a wonderful uh, Christmas break. Uh, hope you have um, some some downtime and, and some well-earned rest, and we'll be back in the new year. Thank you very much. Tech Mirror is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was produced on Ngunnawal lands by Jack Fox. If you would like to support the pod, please give us a five-star rating or even better, leave us a short review. This really helps us to get the word out. We also love it when you send us questions or comments. We read them all. You can find out more by following us on Tech Policy Design on Twitter or LinkedIn or Google Tech Policy Design Centre and follow the links. Thanks for listening. Get in touch and get involved.